Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to FYI, Arc's weekly podcast on innovation and technology investing. This week, I talked to Eric Vishria, a general partner at Benchmark, a one-of-a-kind early-stage venture capital firm based in San Francisco. While most VC firms are focused on growing staff and assets, Benchmark has operated as a team of five to seven general partners with no junior partners or support staff. By being focused on identifying disruptive companies early, Benchmark has invested and helped bring to market iconic companies like Twitter, Snapchat, Dropbox, and Uber. In my discussion with Eric, we talk about why SaaS today is larger than ever before, with lower barriers to entry perhaps, but even lower barriers to adoption. We delve into some of Benchmark's recent investments in software and machine learning. And finally, I get his first-hand account of how Benchmark became the first investors in Cerebrus, a startup that is building the largest and most powerful machine learning chip in the world. Now, Benchmark is not a firm that does a ton of PR, so I am super excited to have Eric on the show. I hope you enjoy this episode. Benchmark is a classic early stage venture firm. It turns out there are not that many of those anymore. The founders of Benchmark were in the mid-90s were actually junior folks at two other firms. And they kind of observed, as junior people often do, that they were the ones doing the work, hustling around, coming up with the ideas, meeting the companies. And then the folks they worked for were the ones making the money. They spun out and they kind of set up Benchmark a little bit differently, which actually, as far as I know, hasn't really been replicated since. And so what they did is they actually set it up as a flat, equal partnership. But at the time, there are five partners. There's no managing partner. There are no associates. There are no analysts. It's literally just five equal partners. And a dollar comes in, it gets split five ways. And, and that's that. That's the group of people that are doing the work Anytime an entrepreneur is talking to someone at Benchmark, from an investment perspective, they're talking to a general partner. There's just a huge difference in terms of how it's set up and it promotes teamwork and reduces politics and control issues and things like that. The second big thing that they did was set it up to be focused. So we're a Series A firm, probably actually a third of the time, we're the very first investor in a company. So Confluent, we were the first first dollars in, Cerebrus, we were the first dollars in, a number of others, New Relic, Elastic, many others where we were the first first dollars in. So we don't do seed, we don't do growth, we don't try to be an investor just to have a, a logo. We either lead, take the board seat and do the work, or we don't. And if you kind of think about that, five partners, a seven to 10 year commitment on every company and every investment means that we make somewhere around eight new investments a year. So it's a really small number of investments that that we make every year. The way the industry has evolved, particularly over the last 10 years, all of our historic competitors 
have grown fund size, become multi-stage, you know, have a variety of products and expanded their staffs tremendously, right? Like they're, they have tons of staff, tons of investor partners, tons of support partners, et cetera, et cetera. If you kind of think about it, everyone's doing it's totally rational. It's 100% rational because if you view the game as growing your AUM, then you increase fees and everything else, then you have to find a way for your general partners to scale. How can you find a way for your general partners to scale? You add a bunch of staff and you add a bunch of partners and then you can increase your fund size and increase your AUM and invest at multi-stage, et cetera, et cetera. I think on you know the benchmark approaches, by the way, all that works fine. Like It, it works well and, and everything else. Our approach is kind of the opposite, which is we try to do series A's. Probably 80% of what we do is series A's. I'd say 15% is series B's where we should have done the series A and we missed it for one reason or another, which happens. And then maybe there's some 5% of exotic other other deals. But the big thing is we haven't scaled. Our fund size hasn't changed in 10 years. We're 100% focused on helping our CEOs scale, helping the CEOs that we partner with scale, helping those companies scale. And if you think about the small number of investments, that what that actually means is that every one of them counts. And so we're putting all the wood behind a very small number of investments and a number of partnerships. And we want to be part of the few companies every decade that really change the landscape, that really matter, that really end up being category-defining or generational companies. And that's the whole objective. It's not necessarily the way to, to maximize dollars from a fee perspective or otherwise, it does align incentives in this interesting way because we're 100% focused on each one of those investments. We do all the work ourselves. And so I think that's a, that's a very high quality product and a high quality partnership. And rather than focusing on getting us to scale, which we definitely benchmark doesn't scale and the benchmark model does not scale, we're focused on, on the company scaling. And, and that's a really unique thing. It's turned out to be more differentiated today than it probably was 10 years ago, actually. You said you help make uh, maybe on the order of eight investments a year. That's across the whole firm, not per partner. So I guess day to day, given the sparsity in the public markets, we're used to almost trading stocks daily. Given just that frequency, which is like once a year, what does the day to day look like? What do you do for all of a year for the most part? I mean, honestly, you're meeting new companies. You know, We probably each meet 200 plus companies a year in terms of initial pitches. And of that 200 you can whittle it down to 20 or 25 that you really start to fall in love with and are really interested in, et cetera. But getting from the 20 to 25 to the one or two is everything. Like, you know, that's the difference. And that's all the gain is there, right? In venture. And so it's really about that down selection and it's, and then working. So that's a huge part of it. And so if you think of that uh, 200 a year, that's probably about five a week in terms of how things play out. And then the rest of the time is, is working on the investments that you have. I spend an incredible amount of time um, executive recruiting for for companies and helping them evaluate various leaders of various functions, helping them stretch to close that exceptional engineer that we come across that is making $850,000 at Google and we're trying to get them to, to come over to a startup salary. Like All those kinds of things are things that we should valuable and helpful on and, and takes an incredible amount of time. The partners of Benchmark, how many are there today? Do the partners specialize in a given field? And when you make a decision, can one partner call the shots and say, we're, we're doing this deal or you need some kind of agreement process? I mean, right now there are five of us who are active investors. There are five of us today you know, the way we work is in one of the beauties of this, the equal partnership is it promotes teamwork because it doesn't matter. There's no such thing as like, 
oh, it's my investment or someone else's investment or someone else's investment. The economic and control interests are exactly the same. And so all we're interested in is every single person making the best possible investments. And so we don't necessarily have tightly defined lanes, swim lanes to, to be in. I think we all have different areas that we care about. I care a lot about enterprise infrastructure and SaaS and open source and some of those types of companies. And I probably have more expertise there than others. And you know, my partner, Bill Gurley, has a tremendous amount of expertise in, in marketplaces, for example, or Peter Fenton is one of the rare kind of crossover investors who's had success with Yelp and Twitter and and then a tremendous amount of enterprise successes with Elastic and New Relic and, and Zendesk, among many others. And so you have this range of people and interest who come at looking at these companies in different ways. And it's really, it's a jazz band in the sense that everyone needs to be able to solo. Everyone has things that they can, they can do, but hopefully the group together sounds better or makes a better decision than we would otherwise and actually results in supporting companies better. And that's a really big part of it. There's no... I'll give you a really concrete example that's just just happened, which is one of my partners interviewed a great CFO for one of their companies. And that CFO wasn't a great fit for that particular company. But the first instinct is like, hey, does anyone else have a role? This is an amazing person. Is anyone else looking like we should we should jump on this? And we'd love to have them somewhere in the portfolio. That type of teamwork is, ends up being really valuable. Enterprise software is something that I really haven't appreciated until maybe in the last year or so. I've uh, I got interested in investing from the consumer companies because everyone writes about them and they're they're very, I guess, sexy and cool and interesting. But with the last year or so, it seems like every month there's one or two enterprise software IPOs doing things that I didn't even know needed to be done. First of all, without I haven't followed the industry for over the course of a decade, has this always been the case? Has there been this stream of interest in enterprise software off the current level of intensity going back decades? Or is this the level of what we're seeing post-2010 is, is something new and different? It's definitely different. I mean, I, I tend to believe that the consumer and enterprise cycles are actually linked much more than we appreciate. So I, I don't think it's a coincidence that in the late 90s, up until the crash, you had an amazing build out in telecom and infrastructure and everything else. And then you know people started to get broadband and typical American consumer all of a sudden had like faster internet and everything else. And then, oh, it turns out like 03, 04, 05, you get YouTube, you get Facebook, you get LinkedIn. Like those aren't coincidences. Like they're very related. You have a big infrastructure build out. You have all these new capabilities, and then all of a sudden you have the consumer applications which take advantage of them, which then of course drive more need. And so then you know you start to get into the mobile era, and obviously three G comes along, and you have faster data networks, mobile data networks, and then you get the iPhone, and then you have GPS in these devices. And like, oh, what do you know? All of a sudden you get Uber, you get Snapchat, you get Instagram. And if you think about even the timing of Instagram and Snapchat, you know, Instagram's a couple years older than Snapchat. What's the difference? Like one's photo-based, one's video-based, one's 3G, one's LTE. Like all these things are very, very related. And obviously it's not as clean as I'm describing here and certainly not as, as simple. And, and there are many, many more factors that are interrelated. So I think this recent several years where enterprise SaaS in particular has turned out to be an enormous category and there's a lot happening is certainly a direct result of a lot of some of the build out, the infrastructure build out and everything else in terms of cloud and where we are in the stack in terms of the evolution of it. And a lot of things have changed. I think you can think about enterprise SaaS in, in kind of three very distinct generations. So if you look at ServiceNow, 
and you look at Workday, if you look at those companies, they're very clear, and Salesforce, of course, they're very clear evolutions of a predecessor. Siebel becomes Salesforce, right? PeopleSoft becomes Workday. Peregrine becomes ServiceNow. There were an existing product that was an on-prem product. The next entrepreneur, both actually in the case of Peregrine and in the case of Peregrine ServiceNow, and of course, in the case of Workday, it was the exact same founders, like the same founders of the software product we're like, oh, wait, we should just take that software and like make a SaaS version of it. And, and that's exactly what they did. They got 10 or 20 or 50x the value in terms of the company. You know, Peregrine was bought for $400 million and ServiceNow is, is like a you know, $40, $50 billion company. So like, it's just a total game changer in terms of the delivery. So that's the kind of first generation of SaaS. And you know, those companies, like I think Salesforce was 09. I think ServiceNow was like 05. Workday was like 03. So that's that generation of SaaS. And they've been developing for a long time. If you look at the kind of next generation of SaaS, they really innovated on an adoption model. And so what I mean by that is like Workday ServiceNow, Salesforce, they're still sold by salespeople, top-down, big-ticket sales, right? But if you think about New Relic or you think about Duo Security or you think about Shopify or you think about something like that, those are adopted very bottoms up. They're adopted in bite sizes and those customers expand and grow. And they added a new delivery model that was really perfect for SaaS. And so that's where the product really, I think the product became very different with that generation of SaaS. The first generation of SaaS was more or less the same product in a web UI where instead of the customer running it, the vendor ran it. You know, And there were a bunch of advantages that came from that. The second generation was a big step forward from that perspective. And then I think now we're in the early days of a third generation of SaaS. And you know, maybe Benchling would fall into that category, You know, certainly HubSpot, Shopify, where they're kind of new markets or new problems that have been unlocked as a result of it. And as a result of the changes in the world or the digital of the world, et cetera. And so, you know, I, th- I think there's, and there's new quantified data sets and, and there's all kinds of things that they weren't really possible before. If I think I'll pick on ones very specifically, the whole MarTech stack, like the, the marketing stack. If you go into a modern marketing organization, any of these companies, they're running 10 to 30 different SaaS products that they're, you know, stitching together. To, but if you think about marketing 20 years ago, it was barely data oriented. Like there were barely systems. It was very much Mad Men style. It was, you know, creative folks sitting around, coming up with ideas, thinking their ideas better and driving forward. And now we're in this world where everything is automated and you, you know, you're tracking every piece and you're doing drip campaigns. You're monitoring what people are interacting with and using and you're personalizing all of that. This is a totally different world than we were in 20 years ago. And so that's, that's just kind of a new generation of things that just didn't exist 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And so I think there, there's these really interesting generations. And of course, again, it's never this clean and never this easy, but they are pretty distinctive in terms of what's happening in enterprise. And and I suspect that in the, I was telling one of my partners last night as we were driving home after dinner that I suspect, you know, 2021 to 2025 or, or something like that, there will be a new consumer wave beyond the kind of fintech stuff that's happening that, you know, that'll come out of nowhere. And in retrospect, when we look back in hindsight, we'll be like, oh, well, these are the infrastructure things that enabled it. And here's how we got here. But I, I couldn't tell you what that is today. When I look at the number of consumer tech IPOs in the last 10 years and the number of enterprise tech IPOs, the numbers are dramatically different. There's maybe, I'm not counting the ones that were acquired, but there's maybe like 20 consumer companies that's around now versus around 80 enterprise software companies. When you look at this kind of 
just at a high level, it seems like there are just a lot more players, and maybe there's just more competition. And this dynamic you, you talked about of a team from a large company just breaks off and builds a new company that's much better, like Zoom is a good example as well. It seems like, would you say that there's less barriers to entry and that somehow, despite the apparent stickiness of enterprise software, it seems like people churn through a key use case every decade or two? I mean, is that true or not so much? I think there's less barriers to entry to create the product, yes. But I actually don't think that that's the most important thing that's changed. I think that there are way, way, way lower barriers to adoption. I think the lower barriers to adoption is actually the critical piece. And what do I mean by that? It used to be if you were the VP of sales and you wanted to implement Siebel, you need to, to go get IT involved. IT would have to go procure systems, rack and stack them. You would have to get someone who knew how to install, configure, set up that software. So you're paying professional services and everything else around it. Then you're going through the access control. Then you have to set up the access control and the integration with Active Directory and all these things. Now, if you're a director of sales in the Midwest and you want to try a new product, you click through on the website, you don't talk to IT, you don't get anyone else involved, and you just try it. And then you evangelize it to other people. So I think that actually more important change that has un been unlocked isn't the barriers to create, it's the barriers to adopt or the elimination of the barriers to adopt. And I think that's allowed, it would be unfathomable to think 10 years ago that FP&A, FP&A, like financial planning and analysis inside of companies would have their own $5 billion SaaS company, right? In Anaplan. That would have just been unfathomable 10 years ago that that would exist, that you would have these specific narrow groups inside of an organization that can by themselves support a multi-billion dollar company. But because the barriers to adoption are so low now and combination of cloud, SaaS, APIs, I think are also a really important change in terms of how all these products are architected. They're architected in a way that they can integrate much more easily. I think all of those things have allowed very bottoms up adoption and very organic adoption. When I was kind of doing a survey of kind of all the enterprise software IPOs, I was trying to classify them. I thought I would just put them into two buckets, the traditional kind of perpetual license companies and the SaaS models. And when I kind of read through all their descriptions and put them into categories, turns out there's three, there's those two. And then there are marketplaces where you pay by this kind of a usage model like Eventbrite. You don't really pay for the software, you pay every time you sell a ticket. Is that a distinction you think about when making these investments? Is one category more attractive than the other? And, and I guess you consider the adoption or usage-based uh, companies to be SaaS or you, you view them as some, some other kind of creature? I don't know that the categorization is that important in the sense like are we we're not religious about it one way or another I don't think and I really think that you know can top down sales like heavy enterprise lift still work absolutely can bottoms up viral adoption still work absolutely both are true both are possible and I think what you really have to have and can you know, a marketplace mechanic work? Absolutely. Can a, you know, subscription pricing, traditional subscription pricing SaaS work? Absolutely. Like I think all those things are true. I think what you really have to have fit in alignment with is does the pricing and business model align with how the customer perceives value and wants to adopt it? And I think if you can align those things, then a lot of different models work. And I think there will be, continue to be situations where you end up with really innovative business models that kind of cross over and take elements of different pieces of these. And I think we're going to continue to see more of that. We have definitely observed, to your point, 
that a lot of the SaaS mechanics and marketplace mechanics are starting to overlap. And there's a lot of interesting pieces there. And so I think it'll continue to evolve, but I think it just depends on you know, what the problem is being solved and how does the customer perceive value, et cetera. Two companies Benchmark has been involved recently is uh, Confluent and Benchlink, kind of in different segments of SaaS. One is more, I guess, horizontal. One is more of a vertical player. Could you walk us through kind of the thought that went into these two investments? Sure. Uh, Confluent is very interesting to us in the sense that I think there is a new generation of open source companies that are defying a lot of conventional wisdom on open source. And someone actually, a public market investor last week asked, asked me, it's like, you know, aside from Red Hat, we haven't had a billion dollar revenue, like annual revenue open source company yet. Is there some limit or is it just a matter of time? My answer to that is like, I think it's absolutely just a matter of time. And I think there's going to be a whole slew of them. You know, I think MuleSoft inside of Salesforce will probably be there in, in no time. Mongo will certainly be there. Elastic will get there. Cloudera is actually getting close. You know, I think Confluent and Databricks of this next generation, HashiCorp, probably like of that next generation will all probably get there. And so I think there's going to end up being a, a tremendous number of them. So I think the really interesting question is, you know, Why? Like what's happened and what's changed. And I think one huge change is like every one of these markets is just way, way bigger than we expected. Every company, every enterprise has way more software than we ever expected in all parts of the business. And therefore, they need almost all the open source companies I just mentioned are infrastructure companies of some sort. And so they need more infrastructure software and more components to do that. And so just the markets have just ended up being a lot, a lot bigger than, than expected. That's one huge change. I think a related change is if I look over the last 20 years, what's changed and how IT or how enterprises adopt products. And I think there's been an enormous shift from IT and ops, as we were talking about before, related to SaaS, to dev. Like there's just been a huge power and conventional venture wisdom for many, many years was like, there's no money in developers, like ignore the developers, nice to have, but all the money's in operations and IT. And I think that's just totally changed. There are many examples, but the two really prominent ones, Atlassian and GitHub, and you're like, oh my goodness, this is just insane conventional wisdom. And so there's been huge shift of power from IT and, and ops to, to dev in terms of who makes the choices. And there's actually also been a huge shift in power from the top of the org to the bottom of the org. And for a lot of the reasons that we were talking about, you know, it used to be a VP sales goes to CIO and is like, hey, Salesforce, like we're going to go implement this and it gets on the plan for IT for next year, et cetera, et cetera. Now it's like a developer wants a database, you know, on AWS and they like click, click, click and like, boom, they, they have it. And so you know, I think we're in a really, really different place in terms of adoption, how adoption is working. And so with Confluent in particular, I think there's another thing that's happening. And Confluent is the event streaming company built around and it's built by and, and built around Apache Kafka. The conventional data architectures for the last 40 years have kind of been relational database for current state, some ETL product, extract transfer load product, and then a data warehouse for historical state. Um, and so you have your transactional system that's working on the relational database. They're kind of constantly taking the changes and shifting and transferring and putting them in a data warehouse. And then you run some offline analysis on the data warehouse. And that's been the kind of conventional data architecture for literally like 40 or 50 years. And in the modern world, what's happened is you're all of a sudden now trying to make real-time decisions. Like it now, let, let's take a real life example. The whole idea 
of a month-end close, like a financial close, is such a relic of history and how things work. Like, think about it. It becomes the end of the month. Okay, everyone needs to have their receipts in. Everyone needs to have the POs in. And we need to make sure. And then we're going to go and we're going to go reconcile all the books for the last month. And then we're going to have like a month-end close. If you think about it, like really... Every transaction is digital now, right? And so in a paper world, yeah, sure. Like that's, you needed to do that. You needed to have batch processing where you're batching January, you're batching February, you're batching March, and you're batching, batching April. In the current world where everything's a real-time transaction and everything's happening in real time and everything's already digital, you really should be able to look at your books on January 15th and know exactly where you stand, like perfectly up and down, right? You know everything that's happened. Everything's already digital. Everything should be reconciled. That's an event streaming world. And the traditional data architecture where you have these three different products, which are kind of linked, but kind of disparate and don't work that well together, it doesn't make sense. And so the idea behind Confluent um, ultimately, I think, will be that you will have an event streaming architecture, which is just like every one of these transactions is, is literally an event on a stream. And you can get historical state, current state, and future state all with the same query and the same mechanism at any point in time. And that allows you to do a lot of really interesting things where you're starting to meld these things together. And I'll, I'll give you a really concrete example aside from the book closing. So imagine that you're shopping around and you look at a bunch of different things. And now an advertiser is just trying to show you an ad that's relevant that you're most likely to click through on, whether it's retargeted or otherwise. Well, yes, we care about the last thing that you looked at, but we also probably care about what have you really been looking at over the last week and a half, right? If we look at the last year, last 10 days of behavior, we really care about that because like, oh, maybe he's really looking at cameras and he's researching cameras and, and we, we have all that data in the last week and a half. And if we just look at the last data point, then all we know is the last data point, right? Which is like, oh yeah, then they click through and he bought some socks. Well, I don't want to show you ads for socks. I want to show you ads for the right camera. And so that's just an example of where it's not just historical state. It's not just current state. It's some melding of all of these things that needs to be reconciled, but, but it can't be done overnight. You can't like do a big job and do it overnight. You need to do it instantaneously. And so how can you within, you know, order tens of milliseconds or hundreds of milliseconds make that decision of what to show someone based on what they've been looking at. And I think those are the types of things that this new event streaming architecture will enable. Does this uh, fully integrate subsume the kind of long-term storage function or is that still handled in, in some other process? The answer is, I don't know. I can tell you that over the last five years, since we started working with the company, since we partnered with them and in the Series A in 2014, which was in their case, the first money that they raised, there's something called the TTL, which is the time to live. And so it's basically how long does data stay on this pipeline? Like how long do these events stay and how long do you keep them around? And when I talked to companies then, a lot of people had TTLs that were a few hours or a day. And some of the leading edge companies at the time were increasing their TTLs to a month. And so they were like, okay, we have a whole billing cycle of events and we'll keep them for a month. If I fast forward to today and you talk to customers, there are folks with TTL like where they're keeping data for a year or two years. And so it's been the natural expansion of this where people are keeping data on it for longer and longer and longer and longer. And you know, maybe eventually you do roll-ups or maybe you eventually do something different. These are all problems that have been addressed in the past with different products. So I think we don't know. We don't know there are things that, you know, the technology needs to continue to evolve and certainly the cloud 
makes a bunch of things easier in terms of just like, okay, we can have multi-tiered storage behind it and roll data back from memory to disk to Glacier, like over time, like you can just do a bunch of things like that automatically and invisible to the user. But I think it's a very, very powerful architecture and notion. And I will tell you, it literally not a week goes by that there isn't an entrepreneur presenting an idea where they're rethinking an existing product area or category that is really oriented around batch to be a event stream model. Like it's just every single category is going to get rethought this way. And I think all these internal enterprise applications are going to get rethought this way. I think it's a lot of promise and a lot of possibilities. Awesome. The life sciences industry is huge. It's also one of the most inefficient industries out there. In real inflation-adjusted terms, it's one of the ones that's shot up the most. We've seen some promise in this industry in terms of companies entering the public markets with like Viva and Metadata. You're also backing one called Benchling. And it sounds like something like uh, the Atlassian for life sciences. What are they working on right now? Yeah, it's a really interesting area, not an area I admit that we know a lot about or have spent a lot of time on. We're not the right investors for something like fundamentally science, like we wouldn't know how to invest in the latest therapeutic or the latest breakthrough there. On your podcast, you've talked about some of these breakthroughs with immunology and biology-based drugs. And so there is this massive shift that's happening in the world from kind of chemistry-based drugs, which are sometimes called small molecule or, or, or whatever, to biology-based drugs or biotech or biopharma, which are basically or often called large molecule. And what's really happening here is you have a major shift in what becomes possible in terms of personalized medicine, what you're able to tailor and power in terms of in the types of diseases that you're able to address for people. And so we met a company about a year and a half or, or maybe two years ago now, where they were basically building a vertical SaaS product for these biotech companies. There's this massive shift going on and they were going after it. And we met the entrepreneur and Saji and Ashu and we were like, wow, this is a really special set of people who have both biology backgrounds and computer science backgrounds. And they're, and they're going after this and there's some interesting traction. What's happening? What's driving it? Because I think one of the things that people tend to over-focus on what the company does or what the product does and everything else. And I think if you look at every one of these, the big breakout companies, there usually is some tailwind, something that's happening in the world that the company kind of has nothing to do with, honestly, that was happening with or without the company that they're taking advantage of, the wind, so to speak. So there's some wind in their sails. In this case, we started to unpack it. And what we realized is in the chemistry-based world, you have these things called lab notebooks or electronic lab notebooks, and you literally like sketch a molecule and you drive a molecule and scientists work around this molecule. In the biology-based world, it's much more complicated because all of a sudden you have like a 10,000 base pair sequence, right, of DNA and RNA that then results and produces a very large protein. And then that protein, part of the way you do discovery on this is you're kind of, you're literally tweaking base pairs, like you're changing base pairs in this 10,000 base pair sequence and you're producing different proteins out of it. it. You know, one of those proteins you may have a breakthrough on. So it's like, it, it's two step. It's much more complicated. It's not a simple chemical structure, but a large protein, like the kind of proteins we're talking about, you may need 10 whiteboards to represent it visually. And so all of a sudden there was a new structured data element, these base pair sequences. And there was a new structured data element around the molecules, the resulting large molecule proteins. And when you have those kinds of things, all of a sudden you need a new 
computer system, a system of record to keep track of that and understand the variations of that, what experiments have been run on what variants, which ones are most likely to create the breakthrough, which ones are most likely to come through. And it turns out like that's not also an easy computer science problem. It's a difficult computer science program. If you just needed a lab notebook, an electronic version of lab notebook, that turns out to be like relatively straightforward. Like that's solved. It's Google Docs plus plus. What we're talking about here is actually something much more tailored, much more structured and and so you have this kind of combination of incredible entrepreneurs who had this insight and realized this and went after it and really have been able to capture a really interesting set. And I think what customers of early customers and, and get going, but I think what's really exciting is, okay, now you have all this data, you have all this structured data, you have all the variants and experiments. Now, what can you do with it? Are you able to predict in some way which candidates are more likely have higher efficacy, which ones are more likely to get through, which ones are likely to have less side effects, which ones are likely to, to create more problems. And so all of a sudden you start to be able to do all these things, just like we were talking about at the very beginning with marketing and other things where you have a new structured data asset, you have new analytics and possibilities on it, and you start to remove a bunch of the guessing game around that. And I think that's just a really interesting area of supporting the research and development inside the biotechs. When I think about the event streaming model you described with Confluent, basically data is becoming way more mobile in real time. And here we're getting, I guess, the personal notebooks of all these life science researchers being digitized. And then, well, the size and complexity of that the content they're managing is increasing. It seems like all this is just a super ripe and obvious target to apply machine learning and, and the next generation of analytics to. You haven't, I guess, made explicit investments kind of with an AI focus. Maybe that's no longer the right lens to view it. Maybe that was like three years ago, how do you make an AI investment? But now it's just maybe presumed to be a core feature of any of these products being developed. I think both are true. So I think that there's going to be a set of areas like these where step one is build the data asset, like have the data centralize it, structure it and everything. And then you'll start to be able to do analysis and ML and things like that on top of it. So I think that's true. I think there are other areas where, and we're an investor and I sit on the board of a company called Blue Hexagon, where actually deep learning is going right at the heart of how this was done before. And so what, what's Blue Hexagon? Blue Hexagon is, um, it's network malware detection. So it's like literally front door, how do you catch bad stuff before it enters your network? This is an area that's huge and enormous, and they're, they're very large companies, you know, the Palo Altos of the world, the Cisco, anti-malware production, FireEye, et cetera, et cetera, where there are a bunch of companies that have owned that category for a really, really long time and have done really well. But the way that those products work broadly, and again, this is reductionist, but useful in terms of understanding it is they're, they're kind of matching. They're looking for signatures, right? You hear signature in sandboxes. They're sophisticated signatures, but you're, it's basically a blacklist. Like it's a sophisticated blacklist that you're matching against. And then if it's not on the blacklist or you're suspicious, you put it in this thing called a sandbox and you try to poke it and see if you can set it off and move on. And so the really interesting case here is that fundamental engine of like, how do you actually catch bad stuff? is just out of date and can't keep up. Like it's just, it can't keep up anymore. We're looking at a world where there are over a hundred thousand new variants of malware every day. That is just too much to assess, to update the signatures. Now you have like very, very enormous sets that you need to match against. Like it's just not going to work. And so these entrepreneurs at Blue Hexagon, Naeem and, and Sumitra, 
They're PhDs who've been working on deep learning for a very long time, for 20 years, some of the few. What they realized was like, hey, we could train neural nets to actually detect whether software is bad or good and do it in real time, like at the front door. And if we do that and it works and it does it well, you'll be able to catch brand new, what's called a zero day attack. So brand new malware that hasn't been seen before. You would still, the neural net should be able to detect it because it's not matching against its signature. It's looking at other. And that's exactly what they've done. So in that case, and it goes to your AI question, which is, like that isn't a feature on something existing. I think that is the fundamental engine that was being used for network protection, intrusion protection is just out of gas. So like that engine needs to be replaced with a new engine and a new approach. And that's what Blue Hexagon is, is attempting to do. And I think that the early signs on it in terms of efficacy and what it's able to do and what it's able to catch are really, really promising. You know, obviously there's 20 years of features on these existing products. So like they, there's work to be done and, and a lot more has to be proven. So I think both are true. Like I think there's certain categories where AI will be a feature. And I think there will be certain categories where AI will be the entree. You just have to look at it kind of category by category. Earlier in the week, I had the chance to speak with the CEO of Cerebrus AI startup company, Andrew Feldman. He is building a chip that is uh, 60 times larger than anything that's been built before. And we're not used to having breakthroughs in Moore's Law at, at its dying years. You guys were involved kind of right from the start. Tell us about how you found Cerebrus. Among the 60 or 80 AI chip startups out there, I'm sure you've come across many. Why did you back this one? Crazy story. I mean, so one, we've been super lucky to be involved. We partnered with Foundation Capital to co-lead the Series A, and, and Pierre Lamont's been involved from the very beginning. It's been a wild ride, and I've learned a tremendous amount over the last three and a half years as they've been working on this. Mostly, that hardware is way, way, way harder than software. A lot harder than I, than I realized at the beginning. I'll tell you the story of the investment and how it came to be. So, I had spent the 18 months prior, so just almost from when I joined Benchmark five years ago up until this Sarus meeting, looking for applications of deep learning like we've been talking about, things like the, the Blue Hexagon example and other stuff. And I looked at a bunch of medical imaging stuff and radiology and pathology, et cetera, et cetera. And so I and just in through serendipity got introduced. One of my partners knew Andrew the CEO of Cerebrus and said, Hey, Andrew sent the note. And he said, Hey, Eric, you should, you know, would you be interested in this? And I was like, yeah, I'll meet you. It's like, I'm walking into the meeting and I'm literally like, what the hell am I doing? I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go look at a semiconductor startup. Like I, we haven't done our benchmarks. Last semi investment was Amberella. Oh, and which obviously was was amazing, but like it's just it hasn't been done, and we haven't invested in hardware, let alone semis, in like a decade. Okay, at this point, and so I'm like, what am I doing going to this meeting? Right, and I walk in, and slide one's like the cover slide, slide two is the team slide, and I was like, oh wow, that's a really amazing team. You know, Gary Lauterbach and Sean Lee and, and Andrew, of course, and and others, Michael James, and so I'm like looking at this, and I'm like. Okay, this team is incredible. I get that. So slide three is the title is something along the lines of GPUs actually suck for deep learning training. They just happen to be 100 times better than CPUs. And as soon as he said it, I palm faced, I just put my hands on my head and I was like, of course, I've been looking in the wrong place for the last year and a half. And he proceeds to describe in detail what I would say is 
deep learning from a computer architect's perspective. How do we understand what's actually happening with a neural net from a computer architect's perspective out versus what we tend to read and what's in the popular media and everything is really understanding these things from the, the data scientist's perspective in. But this is really the computer architect's perspective out. And he talks about the communication bound nature of the problem and how you would go about that, solving that and talks about the Mac operations. And he talks about sparsity and how you deal with zeros. And he talks about all these different things. To be totally honest, most of which I didn't understand really, but sounded cogent. Okay. And so I come out of that meeting, I'm 180 degrees in a different place than I was going into the meeting. And I come out of the meeting and I walk into my partner, Bill Gurley's office and I'm like, hey, I, I met this company. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy, right? It's, they're building a deep learning training system. And we talked about it and he's like, you know, this is like, we've had this over swing in, in terms of general purpose compute. And now with cloud architectures and everything else, like specialized hardware all of a sudden makes more sense because you have the scale where like specialization works. And so like all these different things. He's there. And then he's like, you know what we need? We need the old guys for this. The old guys are the founders of Benchmark. The founders of Benchmark actually did Silicon back in the day. I call up one of the founders, Bruce Dunleavy. And I'm like, hey, Bruce, I have this company, you know, and he knew Andrew from back in the day from C micro days. I said, can you come in and come look at this? You know, so the next day we meet in the meeting is me, Bill, our partner, Mitch Lasky, one of our founders, Bruce Dunleavy, and we're sitting through there and Bruce and Andrew continue to have this packaging discussion and they're using acronyms that I don't know anything about and everything else. But what I did have a ton of conviction on was I had a tremendous amount of conviction that deep learning training was a huge problem because every one of our big consumer companies, Uber, Zillow, Stitch Fix, Instagram before, Snapchat, they were all having immense problems with training. They were all bound by training times. And in a world where interfaces, and we've moved to an agile world where interfaces and code pushes are literally changing like every week or every day, these models that they're training, they may train for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, even longer. And so the iteration cycles on those is so long and it's so out of whack with everything else that's happening in the software world. So it just seems that everyone's struggling with training times. And so Bruce comes out of the meeting and he says, Hey, Eric, he's like, I look super hard to do what these guys are trying to do. But if any team can do it, they can do it. But he's like, I don't think there's a market for this. <laughs> and I was like, Bruce, one thing I'm sure of, there's a market for it. And so it was one of the most, hey, what are the benefits of the benchmark approach in terms of structurally and otherwise that I've seen in, in my five years here? Because not one of us by ourselves knew enough or would have had enough conviction to make the investment. But when you put all the perspectives together, we each had pieces of perspective that made it really interesting. You know, it, it really excited to be involved. I've been blown away with what the team's accomplished. You know, it's 108 PhDs from 30 different countries around the world working on this really hard problem. And I think there, there'll be a lot more details that come in the coming months. From what I've seen, I've been really, really impressed with the progress. I think it's hugely potential. And the thing I'd say is, if you zoom all the way out, is custom silicon for AI going to happen? So I think that's like a fair, like, it's just like, is that going to happen? And I guess the way I look at it is like, if the workload is unique enough and the workload is big enough, as in there's a big enough market for it, then like customize should win. It should happen. Like it, maybe it's not Cerebrus, maybe it's something else, but like it should happen, right? If the workload is unique enough and if the workload is big enough. And I think I have a lot of conviction that the workload is both unique enough and big enough where 
that should happen. And if you look through history, whether you look at PCs and x86 and, and Intel, you look at graphics and, and the GPU architecture and NVIDIA, you look at communications and, and you know low latency chips, like extreme low latency chips and Broadcom, like, or you look at mobile and power efficiency and Qualcomm. In every case, there has been a new workload, you know, mobile communications, PCs, graphics, a new workload. The incumbent has a solution that kind of works and they try to address it and they talk about it. You can go back to Intel in the early 90s and like, oh yeah, you don't need a GPU, blah, blah, blah. So like you always had that, right? And then the specialist comes in and if the workload is big and important enough and unique enough, you get a breakthrough and, and you get a breakthrough on it. And I think one of the really interesting things is, again, going back to the early 90s, when we were playing Pac-Man, it's really hard when you're in the Pac-Man days to envision there's going to be this thing with GPU, it's going to enable enable graphics, and then we're going to play Doom. When you're in Pac-Man world, you can't imagine Doom. Like It's unfathomable. It's unimaginable. And so I think we're in the Pac-Man world with deep learning, actually, where we've had some really important breakthroughs. It's really cool. There's some really neat things that are possible, but we kind of don't know what's on the other side of the big compute breakthrough where you can train models that are 10x bigger than the models are today, or with 10x more data or 100x more data, or and you can iterate on them faster. Like We don't know what that world is. And I think that, to me, is the really interesting possibility and why if you take the kind of current approaches that everyone's trying to do to their logical conclusion, I think you end up for training anyway, I think you end up with something like Cerebrus. That's an amazing story. I love that you were able to just pull the old timers into the room and, and work across generations. That's so awesome. I'm sure you evaluated other AI silicon companies during this period of time. Was it a close call? Did you think there was more than one investment you could make? You know, when we invest in an area and a category, we, we're conflicted because of the nature of the partnership. And this, this is probably, one, I think, one of the problems when people are making hundreds of seed bets or whatever else, you end up in these conflict situations. I don't want to be in a conflict situation. I want to partner with an entrepreneur and we want to work with them and we want them to win. And we want to do everything we can for that specific investment and opportunity and company to be the generational defining company, right? This is a classic marriage. You go once and you stay in. Yeah. And you're in it and you know, and <laughs> it's not always good. And we don't get the luxury of hey, they're all 10 presented at the same time. So I think this is one of the really interesting things is like, you know, we invested in Friendster and that was an amazing opportunity and it was really working, but like you invest in Friendster, you can't invest in Facebook. And so you don't get the luxury of seeing all 10 of them lined up or 50 of them lined up and, and picking. That doesn't work. They happen serially. And so it's actually one of the considerations when you're investing in companies like, is this the one or is a better one coming? And you don't know. In this case, my view was that the team was truly outstanding and the approach was non-incremental. If you really believed it was a communication-bound problem and you believed that sparsity was this issue to be dealt with and like you have these kinds of perspectives, if you have those perspectives, then the logical conclusion is a wafer scale chip with 400,000 cores and a trillion transistors where you had a tremendous amount of inner core bandwidth. That's just the logical conclusion of it. Now, I think a fair question is, hey, Eric, if you realized how difficult it would be to actually do this, would you have invested? I don't know is the answer to the question. To be totally honest, I don't think I really understood at all how difficult it is to actually get it to work and actually do all the work behind it. And so that's part of what I think is so impressive about what they've done. But from just a thesis perspective, 
the thesis held together really, really well. Like it was totally logically cogent. And I think in the software world, when you have a thesis that's totally logical cogent, you just start like, yeah, okay, like let's invest. Like that, that's just a no-brainer. And so I applied that. This is the beginner's luck or naivete to this to this view, you know, and that's how we ended up here. Does benchmark do as I mean, as part of the process, you know, people talk about market size team product. Do you do market sizing as a serious exercise or is it uh is more more driven by some other factor. I think there are cases where you can look at some data here and there and and whatever, but in general not because in most of the the generational defining decade defining kind of companies that we're after, they're not they're creating markets. Like you can't it becomes a phenomenon, it becomes a thing in and of itself. And so I think what you more you have to believe is that if it works that you have a chance for a very large company. And I think that's why this this notion of like what's happening in the world, what's the paradigm shift that's happening in the world, what's the wind at the sails ends up being really, really important. Because I think when really big companies get created, when there's some seam between incumbents that the the new company can exploit uniquely. And I think you end up in a really special place when that happens. And like we were talking about at the beginning with these interweaving waves, like it just of infrastructure and you have to look at Uber and you have to say like, not, Hey, this is the black car market. Bill's talked about this before. It's not the black car market. It's just that like, Hey, this is a new way that's just better. If correct, it's many times bigger than the existing market. It's also one of the disadvantages of being as early as we are. When we invested in Cerebrus, it was the five founders. When we invested in Confluent, it was the three founders. When you don't get the advantage of, Hey, there's a bunch of data to go look at. Maybe we can close from an in-public investor perspective. We earlier talked about software, and right now the SaaS universe is trading at pretty much historic multiples on the order of 15 times sales. Historically, maybe it was closer to seven. Does that seem like a sustainable environment to you? Does it matter for where the Series A stage you're at right now? And do you think there's a meaningful difference in valuation between kind of the late stage private market and, and the public market? I'm obviously not a public market investor, so I'm certainly not an expert in, in the valuations and everything from whatever 50 or so stocks that I follow every day. I tell you, I think there has been a pretty interesting divergence in valuations over the last several months where like some of the companies that maybe aren't as high quality or don't have the same quality revenue stream or economics have been cut back quite a bit. You know, They're still a little high, but they're kind of coming into line. And then some of the ones that seem like, oh, wait, we may have underestimated the TAM in particular, um, and the momentum behind the companies have continued to run. I think the thing that I did a short presentation for our LP meeting in June around SaaS is the new FANG, as I called it. One of the things I plotted was looking at on the rule of 40, which is, you know, call it free cash flow plus growth rate. You know, where are these companies? And, and what I would say is there are a whole host of SaaS companies that are over a billion in ARR, that on a rule of 40 are at like 50, 60, 70 still. And so like you start looking at that and you're like, holy smokes, this is way, way bigger than we ever thought they were. And so does that mean that they should be trading at 20X or 30X sales? Like, I don't know. I'm not, not, I'm certainly not an expert in that. But I think I would say is that people have, you know, as you were saying over the last couple of years, people have woken up to like, oh, wow, these are way bigger than we thought they were. These markets are way bigger and the potential is way bigger than we thought they were. And so I think some of those will continue to run. And look, in some of these cases, we're going to find out like, hey, the TAM was actually a lot smaller than we thought it was. Or, you know, ultimately the customer acquisition model ends up being too expensive or whatever else where competition comes in. And one of the advantages of SaaS is it's easy to adopt. 
one of the disadvantages of SaaS is it's easy to adopt the competitor, the next competitor that comes along, right? In some cases, they may end up, if they don't build the data asset and they don't become the system of record and don't become the integration platform, maybe they're easier to swap out and maybe churn becomes higher. So I think there's a bunch of things that are going to get reconciled over the coming months and years on it. But I do think that people have really woken up to like, holy smokes, these markets are big. And then in terms of late stage private to public, yes, in some cases, I think that the there is so much growth money out there. Like there's so many investors at that late stage, kind of momentum investors, growth investors that they may be not as diligent as you can end up being like as the public market investors end up being over time. Having said that, if you look at the round that Zoom did two and a half years ago, that was at a billion dollars. And if you look at the round that Slack did like last year, even though Slack has come down a little bit in the public market, along with everyone else in the public markets, that was at eight billion. And so, like those two, just as examples, are are still trading at significant premiums to their late stage private rounds. I think CrowdStrike is probably in the same category, among many others. So, I think there's quite a few that have still gotten multiples, not like thirty or fifty percent from their late stage private round, but like multiples of their late, their last late stage private. You earlier mentioned that. Through your portfolio companies, you observed that there was such a huge demand for AI training, and that helped inform you on the market size. Basically, it was a secret. VCs love secrets. What are you observing today in your current portfolio companies? That is something along that line. So you're well. One, if I had such an observation, I'm not saying I do, but if I did, I obviously <laughs> can tell you. Two, I would also just say one of the really, really special things, and one of the real privileges of being an early stage venture investor and and certainly on being part of Benchmark is it's constant wonder and eye-opening and ahas and like, I'm so stupid, I didn't realize that before. Like I can't tell you the number of times, almost every one of these companies that we talked about, Benchling, Confluent and Blue Hexagon and and others that I work with, they all have this moment where the entrepreneur says something and you're sitting there and you're like, I've looked at this space 10 different ways and I never, ever thought of that. Didn't even cross my mind. I've never read that anywhere else. It's like a totally new thought. So I think one of the things that happens is you do all this work every day and you start seeing stuff and then someone says something and it just is like, and then the light bulb goes off in, in your head. And so I think for me, I end up being incredibly optimistic coming out of all of these pitches and all of these um, meetings because I'm always just amazed at what entrepreneurs come up with and how small shifts in looking at things or sometimes big shifts in looking at things leads you to new and expansive places. And so I don't know what the next thing is, but I look forward to uh, that entrepreneur walking in the door. Eric, it's been such fun and a pleasure talking to you today. As public investors, of course, we ultimately rely on you guys to, to supply us with a lovely pipeline of consumer and uh, enterprise-facing IPOs. So uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing some of these companies hopefully graduate to the public markets. Me too. <laughs> Thank you, Ari. That was really fun. Thank you, James. Really enjoyed it. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating on iTunes. You can find the full ARC team on Twitter. We'll catch you next week. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.